0: not thinking of culture as something that can be imported and exported without being transformed but in fact that like people constantly are transforming art as they as it moves from one place to another
1: hi and welcome to the indian edit today it is my great pleasure to have in person in a studio in Boston, um, Laura Weinstein, the Ananda Kumaraswamy Curator of South Asian and Islamic Art from the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. And I'm thrilled that she's joining me here as a guest and we can chat about her museum work, her background um, and art. So thank you so much, Laura, for joining. My (laughs) Um, pleasure. Thank
0: you, Natasha, for the invitation.
1: No, welcome. It's great. Um, I would love to start by talking a little bit about your early influences and um, to hear about whether you loved art as a child or whether there was something in your early years that really led you to pursue art history later.
0: Well, I grew up in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. which is not a place that really calls to mind great aesthetic beauty and, and experiences of the art. But, of course, it's near New York. So I certainly did grow up going into New York City a lot and going to museums and even going to the Zimmerle Museum in New Brunswick, New Jersey, which is where hmm. my parents taught in, in New Brunswick at Rutgers University. So we were always around there. But the... The, um, I think like a lot of people, maybe girls or maybe people in general, I'm not sure. I loved to make art when I was a kid mm-hmm. and I did it for fun and I did it at school. And then I got to a certain point, I think in college, and it seemed to me that people had to make some kind of a choice. And there were some that had so much um, investment in making art and so much confidence in themselves that they decided to go on and pursue studio art. Mm-hmm. And then there were people like me who thought, well, I love art, but I'm not really sure I can make amazing art. So I'm going to do art history. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, I think that almost felt like a failing. Um, But it was a way of continuing to be learning about art throughout life um, without having to make it my sole, mm. you know, my sole endeavor to make art express myself and, <laughs> and find success through that route. So I don't know it's a complicated
1: I guess since your parents were academics that seems also like a sort of natural choice that you would sort of study a subject in that kind of research
0: oriented way Mm. and that's true my parents both make art to a certain extent outside of their work my father was a professor of behavioral psych. Mm-hmm. And over the years that he taught, he used to spend more and more time sculpting and gradually less and less time on his research and his teaching. Oh wow. And now that they're retired, he does he works on his sculpture every day. So yeah, I think I did want to attain a kind of expertise mm. um, that that to me my parents seemed to have gotten and I thought that was really admirable and I wanted to do that too. So yeah, that was a way of kind of marrying art and creativity with a scholarly field.
1: That makes a lot of sense, at least (laughs) from hindsight. (laughs) Um, And I know that you found an early connection with India while you were growing up in New Jersey through a very unusual way (laughs) for someone who doesn't have a family connection with India. Um, Could you tell us about that?
0: I think that... Probably anybody who has grown up in New Jersey would understand the the, the background because um, I grew up right over the border from Edison, New Jersey, which is known for its large Indian Indian American population. I think recently it was about 28% of the population that was Indian American, and I read that that was the highest percentage of Indian Americans in any city in the United States. Oh, wow. So it's a very—there's it, a large Asian population in general, and so that Asian population and the Indian population, I think, does kind of affect the culture of the town. So for me specifically, we used to go to out to dinner at a restaurant, mm-hmm. um, an Indian restaurant. I think it was called Maharaja, and I just have really strong memories of going to this little strip mall, basically, because that's what you get in New Jersey, and we would make— and uh, We would go into the restaurant and we would, while we were waiting for a table or maybe after eating, we would wander through the other stores in the strip mall and we would go into the grocery store and we would sort of smell all the spices and check out all the interesting fruit and just kind of hang out in there. And then we would go, I would go particularly into the record stores, which were selling cassette tapes at that time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I would buy tapes and, you know, I couldn't read what was on them. I didn't really know what I was buying, but I was I was just curious and I would... Um, take those tapes home and um, occasionally try to play them at a party and get very confused responses from my peers who were all listening to like Led Zeppelin, things like that. Um, So yeah, I think, although it wasn't very conscious then, I think that's when I first started getting interested or having some sense of curiosity and familiarity with Indian culture.
1: gotta be one of the more unusual (laughs) stories that I've heard. Um, So was it like Bollywood dance music or was it really like a little bit of everything?
0: It was Bollywood dance. Yeah. (laughs) Later on, I kind of came to understand about Indian classical music and know that there's more than Bollywood. But at that (laughs) time, because the tapes were so colorful and the beats were fun. Oh, that's amazing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So you went on to Wesleyan University and studied art history and had um, a mentor there who Mm -hmm. um, was very pivotal, I think, in the sort of subject within art history that you pursued, um, Philip Wagoner. That's right. And um, I was curious about, you know, his research, of course, I think um, is very interesting, but how you ended up sort of gravitating towards that subject within... Uh, all the options you had
0: the um, so I think my interest in India meant that from the beginning of my time at wesley and i was I was noticing the the opportunities to explore India that were around campus, like there's this um Navaratri festival of music every year mm. in the fall, so there were things like that that I was enjoying. but then when I didn't choose art history until fairly late and at that point, it was, it was in a response to a desire to not, it came out of not wanting to, you know, there's a certain moment in many American young people, young women's lives, maybe when they say, I don't want to study only dead white men, or at least <laughs> the, in the moment when I was in college in the late 90s. Oh, there was a sounds like it was you know discovering we a feminism <laughs> <Yeah. still. laughs> we do it's an ongoing thing but that was you know that's a moment when you're like beginning to question a lot of things that you've learned mm. up until then and so I I got into interested in um getting outside of the canon that that was being taught in the major that I had first selected. And so instead I was like, let me look around and see what's something that I can do that's outside of those boundaries. Why don't I go abroad to India and mm. I can study art from Asia and that just felt so exciting and different. And, and But it had this connection, I guess, because of earlier experiences in my life. But it really felt like something very exciting. Um, so I think it was really that trip. Um, And and then I went to Jaipur and I lived with a Muslim family Mm -hmm. and I think it was after that that I finally Mm -hmm. connected with this professor who had a big impact on me who was was in large part was working on um, the interaction and the um, connections between Islamic and Indic culture within South Asia Mm -hmm. and he kind of helped me build on the experiences of living in Jaipur with this family and turn it into something that I could kind of explore critically and mm. historically. But, of course, I didn't understand any of that until much, much later. You know, at the time, <laughs> I was just trying to muddle along and, you know, missing my boyfriend and those kinds of things. But, you know, in retrospect, it it did play out mm. in a way where each each step was connected to the next one. Right. Did you spend a whole year living in India
1: or a semester? It was
0: just a semester in Jaipur mm-hmm. and it was a wonderful experience with a bunch of travel, we, you know, got to Benares, got to Delhi. Mm. Um lived with a family. I did get to study Indian classical vocal music, North oh, wow. Indian vocal for a while. Um and take a few tabla lessons. Oh, <laughs>
1: fun. So had you had some musical training all through
0: and singing
1: as a child and so on? Yeah, I loved to
0: sing. I was in choirs as a kid. And so, yeah, that was a kind of a natural thing I wanted to explore. In India, we all had to do that. That project that I was on, we had to do a research project. Each person had to, And I decided to study Ragmala paintings, which are these Mm. Indian paintings that you get from... Sort of the sixteenth century to the nineteenth or so, and their depictions of Rugs, mm-hmm. the the modes of Indian classical music, and so. There's and in
1: this the sort of miniature style and in the miniature, exactly the Rajput. Uh. Yes. Oh, okay.
0: From Rajasthan, but also you know further north and even down into the Deccan, mm. and there's this perennial question that people ask which is what is the connection really between those paintings and music is it possible for a single aesthetic experience to be communicated Mm. into totally different media Mm -hmm. and so that that was something that I decided to explore you know I certainly didn't answer this big question but I studied I learned a very basic form of Bhairava Mm. Raga and then looked at the paintings so, oh, wow. I could sort of sing it a little bit and re- look at the paintings a little bit and think about the connections. Oh, this so sounds... is really fun.
1: <laughs> sounds, it sounds beautiful. I mean, those rags have such a, um, because many of them have a seasonal or other association, um, you know, you can at least immediately kind of visualize it. And um, mm-hmm. that sounds lovely. Yeah. Um, I don't really know that much about. Um, that kind of art, but I was um, doing some research and as it so happens fell down this rabbit hole of um, the Metropolitan Museum in New York Symposium on Deccan mm-hmm. Art and um, And um, where Philip Wagoner was one of the speakers. And I saw that this entire collection of lectures is online. And um, people who are listening, (laughs) if they're interested, um, you can both look at the visuals um, and hear them as a podcast. Um, But the art of that period and that area is was so interesting to me because I think, um, you know again, not coming from this world, we think about the Mughal miniatures, um, the Rajput style is known to some extent, and then um, this whole world of art from the Deccan, uh, particularly during this period of the Sultanates, um, between like the 14th to 17th century, I guess, is sort of the big time period, um, was really fascinating to me. And especially how cosmopolitan it was, and I think this is one of the things that um, Philip Wagoner um, studies and um, has really brought to light. Um, but, you know, we think of um, these um, sultanates as um, being really, I mean, of course, their influences sort of historically from where the rulers came from, but we imagine the um, local population as being sort of still very separate and the amount of kind of interchange that was there, but also mm-hmm. with other people coming in constantly from Turkey and Iran and further away, even was completely mind blowing to me and uh, really interesting. Um, so, is this is this the period and the art that you went on to study?
0: Yeah, that is the 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 context that I've worked on and um and again it I didn't really realize I was doing it because of Phil of oh. Professor Wagner but in in many ways I now see that I have done and I think what he has really done which is so influential for me and also just important in the field I think mm-hmm. is shown that 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 cosmopolitanism um is not at all skin deep. It ran very deep. And so, mm. for example, he has talked about um, how cultural patterns in the Bahmani sultanate, so in one of those Deccani sultanates ruled mm-hmm. by Muslims, um, they their culture was very much connected to the culture of Vijayanagara, the mm-hmm. Hindu kingdom on the other side of, you know, further south. And... Vijayanagara rulers called themselves sultans. You know they were borrowing titles from mm-hmm. the Bahmanis. I mean, the, just all of this exchange, and so um, they are things I think that show. Oh, another thing that he he has taught me a lot about is is the Muslim rulers of some of the Deccani sultanates actively patronizing Telugu poetry.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So mm-hmm. you know, you just when you start looking at all of these cultural patterns, you see oh, there's there's really it's not just cultural exchange, actually. It's a whole sense of identity that's quite different than mm-hmm. the very rigid identity that we have today or that people today are maybe trying to resist. But mm-hmm. um, so I think you know, it's just fascinating to me to see that these were periods where when Indic and Islamic are not a binary that are opposed, mm-hmm. they're not separate, really. Mm-hmm. they're it's just really fluid, and then culture um, becomes a way to, to share and, and expand your community or to change your community. I mean, it's just so fluid and I think really fascinating. So for example, one of the things that I have gone on to work on is, um, Persian illustrated manuscripts that were made in the Sultanate of Golconda. Mm -hmm. And, um, These are manuscripts that look very Persian in the way the script is written, and certainly the text is Persian, and the illustrations even are Persianate, you might say. Um, But we know that they were made in a place that had this really interesting, rich, composite culture. And so my questions have always been around, well, what were the artists doing in order to take... Persian culture and adapt it and make sense of it and assimilate it into into the Golconda kind of cultural visual world. Um, so you not thinking of culture as something that can be imported and exported without being transformed, but in mm-hmm. fact that like people constantly are transforming art as they as it moves from one place to another. Um, there's a Shahnameh manuscript, a Persian manuscript that I've worked on a little bit from a different Sultanate, the Adil Shahi Sultanate mm. in Bijapur where the artists have clearly used the costume of the figures in the paintings to indicate that they're Persian. So mm-hmm. the figures wear Persian dress, but the conventions for depicting the landscape and the architecture around them are very, very local. And they are the mm-hmm. conventions that artists in Bijapur use to depict their own land their mm-hmm. own environment so i love to think about how what does it mean that the artist decided like okay this is a this story comes from iran i'm going to make i'm going to mm-hmm. keep part of it looking very persian and people will know that that's something associated with iran and and another place but we're going to take this element of it and kind of make it localized and and there isn't necessarily an opposition there between local and mm-hmm. foreign but maybe there's um a really interesting ability to kind of like make room for multiple identities or mul- or even potentially mm-hmm. sometimes contradicting identities. Mm-hmm. I find that fascinating. I think it resonates for me a little bit with the world. that mm-hmm. as I live it, you know, as we all do, where, you know, one has to make, mm-hmm. I don't know, you're asked maybe to make choices about who you are, mm-hmm. who you are. Um, and um, it can be very liberating to think, oh, I don't have to choose one thing. And I know for, for, Wagoner and for a number of scholars kind of in his circle their work also has really important implications for communal politics in India today mm. um, so work like this shows that as much as some people might feel that there is very deep hostility or mm. um, incompatibility between um, Hindu and Muslim communities in India there's actually this incredible long deep history in which um, people didn't identify with only one religion at all. They they didn't mm-hmm. feel any need to do that, or the, um, that communities were intermingling or com- just so diverse that uh-huh. you can't separate out what was the, you know, quote-unquote Hindu one from the Muslim one. And so I think it really, um, it's important for people today to not assume that the the politics we have today are necessarily things that are mm-hmm. natural and essential mm-hmm. and they they mm-hmm. they reflect the inherent nature mm-hmm. of South Asia it doesn't have to be that way it hasn't always been that way
1: yeah i think that's, that's important. an
0: incredible connection
1: to the current uh i mean i think language too um you know i was surprised in these lectures to realize how because a lot of the ministers and other officials within the Muslim sultanates were uh, local that um, you know Telugu was sort of standard all the way down the hierarchy and um, how a lot of these ministers just had fascinating stories and uh, you know change of allegiance but you know again it's this constant idea of an exchange and that shaping both parties throughout Mm -hmm. um history yeah it was very interesting also the architecture you know how some of um the existing architecture maybe it was a temple then you know repurposed or changed you know it's just very interesting to think about this um as someone who's completely outside um, the space. So, (laughs) yeah, um, I I thought that was a really interesting um, look at this region. You know, the Deccan is just so fascinating when you think about it as this very special kind of hybrid um, um, and very different from the Mughal Empire, which was dominant for a lot of this period. Um, And
0: and, it's... until pretty recently, there was so much more attention paid to the Mughal culture and history and and to Rajput. And so, yeah, I think it's been a fairly recent thing that people have looked more at the Deccan. But Mm. I wonder if maybe in the process of um, studying the Deccan, some of the kind of paradigms that we used to think about the Mughals as well will be rethought. You know, Mm. it was the Mughal court. Right. in fact, more homogeneous than mm-hmm. than the Deccani Sultanates. Right. So, I I think that's part of what drew me to this subject. Yeah, that it was something that allowed you to, um, as one of my professors once said, like to allows you to look around the edges of mm. Mughal culture, or, or around the edges of uh, the ideas that we use to think about medieval India or early modern India, and kind of come at them from new angles.
1: Mm-hmm. So I guess I I jumped ahead a little bit because you studied um, art history as an undergrad, but then didn't get into Mm -hmm. your dissertation and PhD work until after a bit of a break. Is that right?
0: That's right. When you were working in New York in a contemporary art gallery? I did. I did spend about a year in a contemporary gallery in Chelsea, Mm -hmm. learning about the commercial art world and the gallery scene Mm -hmm. and... um, um, it was a strange time. It was, I started working right around nine eleven, and it was a time when I think the New York art world was kind of uh, like a lot of New York, maybe kind of in shock a little bit. So it was a very odd period. And I kind of tested the waters in that world for a little while. And then mm. I thought to myself, okay, I think I want to go back to school. I want to, <laughs> I want to go back to this kind of, um, this context that I know a little better where you Mm -hmm. get to kind of dig into your books and go off and do your research and, Mm -hmm. um, but I've continued to really be fascinated by contemporary art. And I try to, I -hmm. try to keep even today when that isn't the focus of my work, try to kind of keep a connection to the contemporary world. Mm -hmm. So you went
1: back and um, worked on your PhD in New York
0: at this point, right? Yeah. I, Um, after a brief but really wonderful stint working for a former director of the Freer and Sackler Museum Mm. in D.C., where he had a wonderful library of books on Indian and and Islamic art. And for a while, for a few months, I would helped him um, scan slides and Mm. make bibliography of his whole library. And so I just sort of luxuriated in all of that (laughs) for a few months. And as I decided to go back to school... And, um, and that was really inspiring. And so then I went and applied to, and went to Colombia, mm-hmm. studied with Vidya Dehejia, But because New York is so full of university, it was, it was great. It was also possible to study with some of the Islamic art historians teaching at NYU and some of the Persian language professors down there. So being able to take advantage of um, NYU and Colombia's proximity was great. Mm.
1: And did you at this time or during the course of your work, I know your focus was really on the painting, but did you study all these languages as well or have some
0: familiarity with them? I spent a couple summers working on Hindi, and um, but that was always a little bit more for kind of getting around, mm-hmm. navigating India, and I spent much more time on Persian mm-hmm. because I knew I was interested in... Islamic art within the Indian context. And so rather than Arabic, I decided Persian would give me more access to poetry and literature and history. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard. I think it, one of the things that I would do differently if I could do it all over again would be to spend a couple more years before graduate school just doing the languages because it's hard when you're trying to take four art history courses to squeeze in language mm-hmm. around, you know, in the in the empty spots, which are so <laughs> few and far between. So... Um, I did spend a lot of time with Persian and I love it, but I I always actually hope that maybe I'll get another chance to kind of take a leave one day in the future and just go back to it and work more and get myself to be able to read the poetry that I love.
1: Mm, Wow. Um, So during this time, uh, while you were studying for your PhD, um, is when you had the offer from the MFA, is that right? So as it as you were wrapping my, up
0: or yeah i i did my coursework and then my my research my field work for my phd and after that when i was just sort of settling down to write mm. is when um, the mfa was looking for at that point a one year they had a one year position for a south asian art curator
1: Wow, and why why was it a one just an endowment or
0: they some had other? found funding for a one year position and they were planning oh. on trying to to expand it into a permanent position, okay. but um, yeah, I mean these days being tight for museums, I think you have to they have to fight for every curatorial position, and so they were just getting back into the game of fighting it, looking for somebody.
1: Sort of exhibition that they were hoping there was some particular reason it was a
0: one year. <laughs> It was just, um, they were starting again okay. with, um, hi- hiring somebody to work with that collection and it started out as a one year and it, I'm, i just bring that up because that's one of those things when you're first starting out and, you know, are you going to move to a new city right. for a one year job? It was scary and it was a bit of a gamble. I moved my husband and I both up here mm. Um, well, but it was a
1: prestigious job though. It sounds like it would be a one in a million <laughs> kind of opportunity. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: I had such respect for the MFA's collection in in significant part because of its its founder, mm-hmm. who was an important figure in the field who we can talk about, but also because there had been great people as curators mm. of the collection in the last 10-15 years, and I had I have known a number of them, and really mm-hmm. respect them, mm-hmm. so yeah, so the job it was a really exciting thing for that job to be posted, and I immediately applied to it and then um was thrilled to be able to come up here and take it and even more thrilled that it eventually did become a permanent position so now I've been there almost ten years. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, it sounds like
1: because these positions are so rare um obviously. They probably went through several rounds of interviews with you and all of this, but you know, what was it that was the be- such a great fit um, for them and for you? I mean, do you know how many people applied? Was it like?
0: Hundreds? I don't know how many people. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think it is. I mean, when I went to graduate school, I remember saying to myself, I don't know if I'm going to get a curatorial or an academic job after this in my okay. field because it's really competitive. But I'm going to do it anyway because I'm pr- pretty sure that I will feel it was worth the time and that I got mm-hmm. out a lot out of it, even if I go on and become mm. a, a whatever and anything.
1: Um, so you weren't clear. Guess, you thought academia was an option. After yeah. Yeah. NCAA, I thought I might do
0: academia and follow, try to, you know, try to be my do what my parents did but um but then I think that there aren't that many jobs in academia or curatorial work in this field Mm -hmm. but thankfully I think the graduate programs are are sort of adapting to that and so Mm. there aren't that many people who come out of graduate school Mm. with with that particular mix of skills Mm. so it's
1: but I mean you were mm-hmm. also in the running with people who had curatorial experience it wasn't right it wasn't just the recent graduates who were c- under consideration That's it could true. have been someone who had already done the same job somewhere
0: else and It's true. I think for me I was lucky that I had done a bunch of different museum mm-hmm. type and internships and some you know work in the gallery I had a a range of experiences in addition to the academic work. And in retrospect, I think that may have been a, an important factor. And it is something that if, you know, when people come to me and they're thinking about curatorial work, I will mm-hmm. encourage them to, to to get some experience outside of academia because mm-hmm. the truth is, you know, God, I love the time I do, I spend researching the collection, but it's not the only thing I do. <laughs> right, There's right. a lot of other stuff and a lot of public-facing mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, work. And so I think, I think it is important when trying for a curatorial job that you should, that you, you know, demonstrate that you Mm -hmm. know how to look up from the books and, (laughs) and speak in a way that's accessible to, to very, you know, to most people and, and bring the art alive to a non-specialist audience.
1: Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it it sounds incredible and I'm sure, Everyone who supported your application and recommended you and all of that um, made all the difference as well. Um, um, I'd love to talk a little bit about um, Ananda Kumaraswamy, um, who, as I understand it, was one of the first curators of Indian art in the U.S., Um, And after which your title is endowed. (laughs) So um, could you tell us a little bit about him? Because he sounds like a really fascinating person and started out as a geologist and was Sri Lankan and had an
0: English mother. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He was a fascinating figure and he um, led a a really complex life. So there are just so many stories one can tell about him. (laughs) Um, He was born in... 1887 and um as you said to an english mother and a sri lankan father and he was kind of i think educated in england but went to sri lanka as a geo you know once he had done his geological training and he went there to look at the you know mm. at the geology of the place but quickly became Interested in other aspects of what he was seeing around him. He was there with his first wife, and they began photographing and kind of trying to document the, the surviving craft traditions that they saw around them, metalworking and woodworking and, um, and other types of like semi-sort of traditional ways of making objects and clothing and items of, of daily use, as well as ritual objects. And he became really sensitized to the political aspect of, um, but I think he became moved by the political moment where people were realizing we're becoming very quickly westernized. You know, Mm. what is it, is this a time to try to hold on to our own, you know, quote unquote, national culture or fight for that national culture and, and really try to make an argument that it needs to be preserved and honored. Um, obviously, you know this was the early nineteen teens, and so you know this was not the very beginning of the nationalist movement, but it was it mm-hmm. was growing and becoming really really powerful and um, and preserving cultural traditions became very much a part of that movement and so he he began writing and um documenting what he saw about him uh, around him and began collecting objects and that that was his start but then he went on from there and sort of moved into India and started collecting all sorts of art works mm-hmm. um not just things that might be seen as quote-unquote craft but more you know in fine art traditions and so that was I think his launching pad into a career in art history that lasted for the rest of his life um one of the things that well, so I should say, I think he amassed a really, really significant collection of art as he was writing, so he was kind of collector, scholar at that at that in the in the twenties, uh, the teens and twenties, and at that time, India didn't have a national museum yet, and there was a moment when he tried to mm. have his own collection become the kind of core of a new national museum or the first national museum, but it was a politically very tricky time and it didn't work out. And so his collection did did leave the country, leave India, um, and ultimately even leave England, where which was his other kind of home mm-hmm. um, and... He found a home for it in Boston, selling it to an early MFA benefactor, Denman Waldo Ross, Mm -hmm. and Ross gave it to the MFA and also was instrumental in helping Kumaraswamy himself become a staff, you know, a member of the curatorial staff Mm -hmm. at the MFA and the first curator of Indian art, as you said, in, in America. Um. So then he took on his sort of third hat. You know, he went from kind of geologist to collector and then scholar and then curator. And and that's not, you know, he wouldn't even stay there. He, he worked on curatorial type work for the first 10 or so years that he spent in Boston, maybe 15. But eventually he became interested in metaphysics and he even sort of mm-hmm. moved on from looking at these really specific um, schools of painting and cr- trying to, you know, the kind of work he had done when he first came to Boston was sort of trying to establish chronologies of, you know, what, what sculpture was made at what period of time and mm-hmm. where, and, you know, he eventually kind of drifted on from there into much deeper, more philosophical questions. So his career is just so mm. sprawling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but along the way, he made some very, very important contributions, even now, to the way that... um not only Indian art, but also Indian culture generally, I think, is understood mm. in the West, mm-hmm. in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, although, so I mean, so he was he was working in the field at a time when um, the West didn't consider India to have a fine art tradition, and he was one of the people who argued in the early twentieth century that Indian sculpture, Indian painting, Indian traditions did qualify as a fine art tradition and he in part did that by arguing that that these objects that were made had profound spiritual value Mm -hmm. or expressed some profound spiritual sentiment and that is something that um that even today i think there is this idea of india in the west as being spiritually Um, how do I put it? I think that there, well, maybe I'll put it more specifically within my field, the linking of Indian art and religion, mm-hmm. um, and spiritual- spirituality has been so profound that it has taken a long time for art historians to step back a little bit from that and say there are mm. other ways of looking at these cultures mm. they they mm. have um they have visual histories and cultural histories and social histories they don't mm-hmm. only mm-hmm. embody Hinduism, mm-hmm. the basic ideals of hinduism so he but
1: that's so interesting to me because. You know, if you look at Western art as well, it also has this very dominant religious history. Um, why was it so
0: different? When you say it also has this dominant religious history, you mean because of you know art, Jesus and Mary, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, art if for you the think church, of, like
1: the Renaissance, and mm-hmm. um, yeah. I again, not knowing the field. Mm-hmm. Uh why is it such a tighter link for Indian art than a lot of the Western historical tradition as well?
0: I mean, one argument that Kumar Swami made that I find really fascinating is he um, he came into a field I think where the non-realistic nature of Indian art, you know, so the fact that it didn't in that most Indian art over the you know, eons has not intended to replicate. You know what we see with our eyes, but has tended to, towards more stylization or abstract or symbolic representations. Mm. Um, you know, he came into a field where, uh, into a moment where that was seen as a failing mm. by European art historians, who were some of the first to look at India. And they found they they would sometimes argue that Indian art was vulgar and that the artists didn't have the ability to create naturalistic imagery, oh. and so Kumar Swami came in and he said, "Actually, it is the Western art that is lacking in this regard. Art that is merely concerned with surfaces, merely concerned with replicating what we see with our ideas, is much much less p- profound, less important." than art that seeks not to just replicate what we see with our eyes, but to go deeper and to express truths about existence and the cosmos and the spirit. So he was trying to kind of mm. um, use the idea of the spirituality to huh. raise the status of Indian art in the eyes of, of mm-hmm. art historians who really were so focused on naturalism. Mm, So that's that's just one element of it. I feel like we could talk about this for the
1: rest of the conversation. But um, I do have so many more questions. I feel like we should have a part two. Um, Mm -hmm. But... You know, just for us to understand his collection and um, how it became part of the MFA, is this, just set the context for us with the other American museums. So is MFA's collection still considered one of the best in the Indian art department? Um, And is that, is his original um, collection uh, still a very significant part of it?
0: He, so he came in 1917 to Boston with his collection, mainly his painting collection. Mm. And that is, even today, one of the most important Indian painting collections in the world, certainly mm. in the U.S. Um, it was collected at a time, particularly the Rajput paintings were collected at a time when no one else was collecting these mm. things. And so he was able to buy paintings that probably came straight out of um, the families of artists, who had you know, mm-hmm. family descendants of the artists themselves mm-hmm. paintings that had been passed down through a workshop or a family and so you know the works of art that he was able to get are are an amazing window into um the history of Indian arts mm. um but then he at, once he came he was here for three decades and so he collected for the museum Mm -hmm. then and Mm -hmm. he was acquiring a lot of important Indian sculptures South Mm -hmm. Asian sculptures really not just Indian Mm -hmm. and um, that was a time when the Metropolitan was getting going as well but there weren't very many other museums in America that were collecting Indian art in a focused way so um, it remains today one of the maybe three most important collections in the United States Mm there's an interesting little um nuance though which is that when uh as i said Kumaraswamy swami sold his collection to denman ross who mm-hmm. gave it to the mfa ross gave thousands of works of art to the mfa and he had a um one qualification one restriction mm-hmm. on the gifts that he gave was that they were they should never ever be loaned to any museum Ooh. except the fog so they can go to harvard they can go on view at the harvard art museum long distance or so. at the at boston yeah i mean i think it was a time when loaning works of art to other places was risky huh. risked right. even the the material okay. kind of stability of the object things were moving around in um, pretty primitive ways so The Kumaraswamy, what we call now the Ross Kumaraswamy collection that came Mm -hmm. in in 1917, cannot be loaned. And so one really important part of my job, I feel, is to try to find ways to Mm -hmm. bring the collection to the attention of people around the world who are interested in Indian art without having it leave the door. And that requires a lot of creativity and yep. determination. And it's it's frustrating not to be able to lend the collection mm-hmm, mm-hmm. widely because it is important right. to telling the story of how Indian art developed. Oh, that's so interesting. Um,
1: well, let's talk a bit about your work, uh, which I haven't really touched on. Um, so, you know, in addition to the exhibitions, um, you do a lot of... Um, I, again, tell tell me if I'm wrong, but I imagine that there's conservation work that um, curators are sort of supervising. There's work of a dish adding to the collection, potentially doing the exhibitions, and your research. Is this is this a fair um, kind of big picture of you? Um, yeah, yeah. But tell us tell us what you do. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, all of that. So research. On the collection, expanding it, you know, curating exhibitions of it, either temporary or long-term. And then there's a lot of teaching. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of helping to train tour guides or working Mm. with university classes that come in to see works of art. Um, Or, you know, sometimes we even teach courses. So there's a lot of that. Um, Writing books. I've done two catalog since going to mm-hmm. you know since arriving at the museum and i'm i'm finishing a third um luckily i get to do a certain amount of travel and um because connecting with other museums and collectors mm-hmm. is an important part of of what mm-hmm. we do so it there's lots of different aspects yeah. to it it
1: sounds really diverse uh and very different from what i imagine at least an academic job would be like <laughs>
0: yeah i think so, so.
1: D- and you know um With all these different jobs within your job, basically, do you find that, you know, it's like seasons where you're sort of working for several weeks or months at a time on certain aspects, like if there's an exhibition that you're planning? um, Or is it like a day in the life where you can sort of, you know, every day you devote a certain amount of time to these different roles?
0: Um. I think that the collection of Indian art at Boston is so important that we should have multiple staff members who work on it together so that some people can focus on, you know, working with supporters or teaching and others can work on research and writing and everything. But at the moment, it's really just me. Oh, wow. And so I juggle it all every day. Um. And you have to work hard, as we all do, to carve out time to do serious research or serious writing. Right. But I'll give you just one example. Like right now, we're in the final stages of reinstalling the Islamic collection. Mm. And just to focus on the the part that connects to South Asia, you know, one of the things that we have never done in our museum before really is um, emphasize the fact that South Asia is part of... The world of Islamic art, and obviously we've been talking about the Mughals and the Deccani sultanates, mm-hmm. um, and so for me it's very important to include South Asia when we look at Islamic art, and it's also in- important to clu- include Islamic art when we when we show South Asian, mm-hmm. and trying to. Um, it's coming directly out of my background and my mm-hmm. mentor's background, you know, trying to to blur that boundary that we have literally a boundary, you know, there's a door between the Southeast, Southeast Asian collections and the Islamic collections, and I'm trying to blur that. So right now I've been trying to finish writing labels that explain why this Indian stuff is in the Islamic gallery, how mm-hmm. people understand the history of Islam in South Asia and, and these um, interconnected histories in general. So I've been working on my labels a lot. I'm mm-hmm. trying to find some time to focus on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it'll be on to the next thing. <laughs> because also the collection
1: now, I mean, we've talked a little bit about um, the this area which you specialize in, but you, know, you also put together the Mega Cities Asia, which is a contemporary um, uh, exhibition. And it seems like there's just a lot of, uh effort when it's something that is not directly within your field so um it, it- i'm just kind of overwhelmed by the whole range and scope of this <laughs> i guess mm. but um yeah <laughs> it's very interesting i guess a- it keeps things really interesting because yeah. you are always learning new things i mean and- i
0: like to i do like to learn new things i don't like to grow out on a limb by myself though so i in a way i feel like my path is a little bit led by the people who i'm who are out there for me to collaborate with just mm-hmm. like i kind mm-hmm. of got into my field because of in part because of these really influential scholars that I came Mm -hmm. to know. Like now, you know, I did the Megacities Asia exhibit because I had a connection with a contemporary art curator and we started generating an idea. And Mm -hmm. now, you know, the shape of the gallery of Islamic art that I'm working on is taking form in response to kind of um, some of the members of the local community in the Boston area, you know, mm. an artist or a mosque and cultural center. And so I, I just I really like to work that way. Mm. I, some there are some curators who have a passion for a field mm-hmm. and they are going to curate five shows on that, mm. you know, going right. deeper and deeper into different aspects of that subject. And they're going to just do incredible groundbreaking yeah. work in that area. And that's just not me. I'm more of a grazer yeah I think
1: <laughs> that sounds like a good fit. Uh, I was wondering how you have time and when you look at um, other galleries in the museum.
0: Um, One of my favorite things about working at the MFA is that we get invited to um, tours led by the curators of shows mm-hmm. before the museum opens. Mm-hmm. So they're done at nine fifteen a m. The museum opens at ten. and so when there's a new show up, Somebody will schedule a tour and you get to oh, go— Just for the staff. Just for staff and volunteers. I see. And you get to go around the show and you hear not only about the content of the show, but you hear about the making of it. The whole yes. besi- behind-the-scenes thing right. doesn't get old no matter how many years you've been working there. So that <laughs> those pre-10 o'clock— Um, explorations of shows are really, really fun. So you
1: would go to that, like, for example, there's the Frida Kahlo Mm -hmm. exhibit right now. Yeah. Um, But then you also go back on your own time or you really don't have time
0: for that? I try to make those tours because if I don't, sometimes I find that a show has opened and closed and I missed it. Right, right. It's horrifying, but um, it happens sometimes that even though it's in my own building, I don't always get to see it. (laughs) Right, right.
1: Yeah, I'm, you know, really interested in the, the whole idea of the museum. And it sounds like, um, you know, contrary to maybe what you would expect, um, that visitor uh, attendance seems to be going up in general at museums. Um, I don't know, you know, the numbers at the MFA and so on. But I was wondering, you know, whether you think a lot about this. Um, I'm sure as a whole, the staff does. Um And also just in the context of, you know, now with things going online, you have the whole Google Arts and Culture Museum visit, um, whereas with some museums you can really kind of have a virtual walk around. A lot of galleries have close-up looks at paintings and so on. And I was wondering, you know, in the context of how things have changed and how the museums have changed so much over the years, um, you know, with families being so welcome, all of this, um, what you think are really kind of the challenges for museums now and also opportunities and things that are really exciting.
0: I I do think that the shifts that are happening in museums are, are, are exciting. Um, we talk a lot about making galleries interactive now, which is not mm-hmm. something that was really an emphasis before kind of mm-hmm. this moment we're living in, but I think it's it's great it's not really necessarily requiring um us to give up anything mm. um as curators i think it's just um f- about finding new ways to draw people in and mm-hmm. um and maybe not having it always be um i i, I like that we're now emphasizing trying to make galleries work for different types of learners and different types of lookers, Mm. that the museum visitor doesn't have to be somebody only who is prepared to read 200-word labels, Mm. you know, and go from object to object and see everything in a room and do that for six hours and then go home. I mean, now the idea is that maybe somebody can come and they can engage in some interactive activity in a gallery and they can hear a talk and they can have lunch and they can... um, you know, have a whole range of experiences or mm-hmm. go to what f- suits them. And you know, the truth for for me personally is that I even I don't like to go and read every single word of a hundred object labels. Mm. <laughs> you know i <laughs> I think museums are tough on people mm-hmm. and the ways they're changing. I think makes them much more livable and mm. more inviting. So mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. it's great. I mean, the challenges are are myriad and they always will be. Um, the MFA is a kind of unique... Um, institution in that it's a private museum. We really see ourselves as as you know, offering a public service, and we're part of mm-hmm. the you know the city of Boston. But it's a private museum, and and we do have to support ourselves. Mm-hmm. We do have to make sure that attendance stays up, mm. um, and um, make sure that the museum flourishes in all in in every way. And so you know we want to be more and more inclusive and bring in young people, but that also brings in a challenge of how do you maintain. Mm-hmm you know, maintain this big building, how do you have enough shows a year to bring everyone in? It's it's incredibly challenging. I think the MFA has 35 to 40 exhibitions a year. Wow. And I can tell you that people feel it around <laughs> yeah. the museum. Right, right, right. Yeah.
1: Um, I have to ask what if you have a couple of favorite objects in the museum.
0: Mm. Do I get to just focus on my area? <laughs> sure. Just
1: pick one thing
0: even. <laughs> um, I... One of my favorite objects from South Asia is a relief panel from a stupa, a Buddhist sacred site Mm -hmm. in South Asia, South India. Um, And it's a really cool object because on one side of this stone slab is the depiction of a scene from the life of the Buddha. And you can see clearly that um, it's a scene where um, the Buddha has just bathed in the river and all of these Nagas, all these snake kings and queens as well, are coming up out of the water to kind of pay mm. homage to him and to show that they believe that he is going to go on and become enlightened. So it's a, it's very clear, clearly a narrative scene, except Buddha himself is not represented as a man. He's represented through a symbol, which is a symbol of his footprints, two footprints with a chakra on each one, a wheel. Mm. So it's this totally figural scene with all yeah. these people in it, except there's no Buddha. And... When I, try, when I teach that, you know, show to people, it's very puzzling. Um, but what is so fascinating about the object is that it was reused about 100 years later. Hmm. And at that time, they decided they didn't want to use that relief anymore, so they carved the other side of the stone slab in, as well. Hmm. And the other side depicts a completely different scene, and in that scene, they do show the Buddha as a man in a human body. Mm-hmm. So in that one object alone we can see a major transition that took place mm-hmm. in South Asian art where we went from what we call like the aniconic or the symbolic representation of Buddha mm-hmm. to the representation of him in human form mm-hmm. and you know the the image of the the meditating Buddha is one that is sort of omnipresent today we all know what that image looks like but it actually did get born at a certain moment around you know the first second century AD and I love that I have an object that embodies that transition Um, and one last thing about it is Mm -hmm. that it was on a stupa and you don't go inside so you can only ever see one side of that slab at a time when one side of the slab was facing outward Mm -hmm. could be seen the other side was facing the solid core Mm. of the stupa and so the artists didn't, as a result of it never being possible to see both sides, they didn't care, I think, that they carved one side so it was oriented one way, and the other side, when they recycled it, they carved it completely the other way, 180 degrees. Hmm. So as a result, people come into the gallery regularly in the museum and they say mm-hmm. you have put it upside down <laughs> right. and I have to say like look at the other side you'll see it It all there's always one upside down side and one right side <laughs> up side well, that's a great, and uh, it's a curatorial choice yeah. right I had to choose which one do I want right, to be a right side up <laughs> and now I have to spend you know forever explaining that to people and, and trying to justify my well maybe the curiosity of
1: that brings them to at least ask questions right. about it they're so all fun conversations that's, uh, <laughs> That's really great. Yeah. Um, so where is it exactly?
0: So it's can... in the Gallery of South and Southeast Asian Art. Okay. Yeah, on oh, the first floor of the Asian. Take a wing. look now. <laughs> do you come. Um, so we're running out of time, and
1: I always love to ask um, a few more personal questions about um, you know, how you like to do things, things that you love. Um, and obviously, I would love to know about um, favorite books. So maybe we should start with that in case we run out of time, whether there are books that have really influenced you, whether it's, you know, more academic or just something you're reading right now that you're loving?
0: I um I mean, I'm reading a book right now called The History of God, mm. or maybe it's called A History of God,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, by a, a really amazing historian named Karen Armstrong, who Started out life as a Christian nun, and then decided oh. she wanted to know God through scholarly means rather than through kind of personal spiritual means. So it's a fascinating oh. book, um, but but I only read about five pages a day maximum mm-hmm. because there's <laughs> so much in there. Um, another book that I have on my bedside table is a is a more of a museumy book. It's called um, "The History of Boston in Fifty Artifacts."
1: Oh, it was written by
0: the. The chief Boston archaeologist oh. or the the official Bo- uh-huh. archaeologist of the city of Boston. And it's amazing. And it has huh. odd little bits and pieces of things that have been discovered when they were excavating a site to build a new high rise in downtown Boston. Um, things from thousands of years ago or hundreds of years ago. And I love the way these little bits and pieces of material culture can tell you the story of a place. So
1: interesting. That sounds great. Um, And then I'd love to wrap up with, um, you know, as um, being a mom and having young kids, um, we have kids in the same school system. So that's how I know this. Um, What, do you have any sort of tips or favorite things when you're traveling around museums with your kids or traveling around the world or museums that you think are particularly great for visiting with kids? Um, we come to the MFA all the time, of course. But uh, so there's like many questions in one. Uh,
0: I um, It's I don't know if I have a great answer for this. When I take my kids to the MFA, mm-hmm. I usually do it on big festival days mm. when there's a big cultural celebration. And so there's music and dance and storytelling yeah. and performance. And so I let them, um, in a way, guide the visit and they yeah. they kind of end up bringing me to things. But, um, but I don't know. I think my general... MO with kids in museums is just to try to have um, n- not low expectations, but just to understand like <laughs> they're going to set the pace and right. and the time schedule. And then it's just such a, Yeah. frankly, it's like a privilege for me when, when sometimes I get to go by myself Right. right. <laughs> and get to like, I mean, I, I work there, but it's not the same. It's when, when yes. I visit another museum right. and I can go at my pace, that's really fun too. It's a totally different experience yeah, yeah, with yeah. kids and without. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. I know. Both great. So, (laughs) um, okay, I think we're going to have to wrap up here. But um, thank you very much for this great conversation.
0: I really enjoyed it. Oh, my
1: goodness. My pleasure. I'm so pleased that we could do it. Thank you so much for coming today, Laura. And um, thank you all for listening. Um, I uh, hope. You can look up all our show notes and see all the things we discussed. Um, And if you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and um, rate and review on iTunes so other people can find these amazing conversations with wonderful women. Thank you.